take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 15. That sounds a little strange saying that, not saying Hebrews chapter 12 or whatever. But today and next Sunday, we're not going to be in Hebrews. We could be, and it would fit with what we're going to talk about, but I want us to specifically look this Sunday and next Sunday at the cross and the resurrection. Uh, and as we come to this table, how the cross ties into the table. We've talked about that before, and we'll talk about it many more times in days to come, uh, as long as we're on this earth. But I want us to see that as clearly as we can right now. I want us to, next Sunday, we'll, we'll look at the cross and the resurrection together. Really, we'll, we're going to talk about two miracles in three days. Uh, because And one that was visible and one that was not so visible as far as uh, understanding the miracle itself, the cross being the one that's not so clear on the miracle, but it was a miracle indeed that took place there. It just took a little time for it to be demonstrated and understood on the basis of the resurrection. And so we'll look at that next week. A bit more of an evangelistic sermon, so invite your friends, your neighbors, and we'll have a great time of worship at the Christian school, which I hope... Uh, will be our last time at the Christian school. Not because I don't like going there, but I hope and pray that by this time next year we are on Oakleaf Lane for Easter and we'll have our service there on this particular day. Now looking at Mark's Gospel and chapter 15, I want to walk through this just briefly as we, we think about the table today. And, and really as I often say, the table is really the essence of the sermon today because it is a passion drama. It is an enactment uh, and a reminder, a visual reminder of what took place on that day 2,000 plus years ago. Hear the word of the Lord as we read together in chapter 15 of Mark's gospel. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and the scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Now realize this is after the betrayal, after the Garden of Gethsemane experience. This is after they have arrested him and brought him into, uh, uh, into their captivity. Verse 2, Pilate, that is the Roman authority, questioned him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, it is as you say. In other words, yes, I am. The chief priest began to accuse him harshly, and then Pilate questioned him again, saying, do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you? He was looking for Jesus to make a defense. He was looking for Jesus to say, listen, I've been... Totally misunderstood here. I mean, you know, they, the, the, the authorities, the, the Jewish authorities have just totally misunderstood what I've had to say. But he doesn't. He makes no defense. He makes no excuses. He in no way tries to water down the truth that he's been proclaiming for three to three and a half years. But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one 
any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. And Pilate answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, Crucify him! But Pilate said to them, Why? Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! Do you see that parallel with what had taken place just four or five days earlier? Blessed be the name of the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Laying palm branches before him as he rode into town on the back of a donkey. Celebrating him because of the miracles for all of his goodness and all of his, his marvelous deeds. They, they were just amazed by what he had done. And they cried out in praise to him. But here just four or five days later, those same people whose voices were tender and caring, now turn to anger and vehemence. Crucify him. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Only the Roman authority could do that. The Jews could charge him with blasphemy the Jews could charge him with everything under the sun but they did not have the authority to crucify him and so that's why they took him to Pilate and he delivered him over to be crucified the soldiers took him away to the palace that is the praetorium and they called together the whole Roman cohort the, the, the Roman cohort probably was a whole battalion, a, a whole, a, a large number of Roman soldiers. And they dressed him up in purple. And after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews! They kept beating his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling and bowing before him. After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him and they led him out to crucify him. And they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Then they brought him to the place Golgotha which is translated place of the skull. And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now, the wine mixed with myrrh was a very common practice uh, among those Romans who were about to crucify people because the cross, as we understand, was a very painful and very agonizing experience. And this, this wine mixed with myrrh was sort of a... a, a, a deadening agent if you will it, it helped take the edge off some of the pain and, and Jesus said no 
No, I, I'm not here by your desire as you think. I, I will not take the, the sedative. I will not take the painkiller. I will not take that which will take away any moment because I'm here for a purpose. Peter will later say what you did, you evil men and you religious leaders, what you did by turning him over to the Romans and having him crucified, you did by the preordained counsel of God. That was Peter's message at Pentecost. Because Jesus was there not as a victim, as it certainly appeared. And someone just reading the crucifixion story for the first time and not understanding the totality of the meta-narrative of Scripture might very well say, oh, what a tragedy, what a horrible victim this person is. He was good and he, was, he, he only did good deeds and he taught great teachings and, and now it's tragic he's going to his death. But Jesus came not to teach good teachings and do great miracles and, and do nice things. Jesus came for this very purpose to go to that cross. Pure and simple. I mean, there were, Jesus made it clear throughout his ministry that, that no one could take his life. The Romans were not strong enough. The, the religious authorities were not strong enough. No one could take his life. His life had to be laid down, as he put it. That is given. It's given that we might, that we might have life. They brought him to Golgotha. They tried to give him the mixed wine with myrrh and he would not take it. He was drinking of the Father's cup here. You remember back in the garden? He said, Father, if this cup can pass from me, if this, this, this cross that I'm about to face, if this, if this cup can pass from me, this cup of bitterness, this cup of pain, this cup of, of sacrifice, if it can pass from me, then Lord, I, Father, I want it to. But not my will, but your will be done. Richard Baxter, the reformer, said he was drinking of the cup of God as he went to that cross. And in verse 23, when they tried to give him the wine and the myrrh, they were trying to get him to substitute the cup of Satan. Satan was saying, I can make it easier. I can make it less painful. I can... I can make this path your own not nearly as traumatic as it's going to be. And Jesus said no. And they crucified him. You know, the other gospel writers drag it out somewhat. They talk more about how they laid him down. They nailed him to the cross. And Mark just cuts to the chase they crucified him they, they put him to death as a criminal they treated the very son of God as a common criminal they crucified him and they divided up his garments among themselves casting lots for them to decide uh, what each man should take it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, 
the king of the Jews, Messiah, promised one. The one whom Isaiah had prophesied of this very moment. The one that Isaiah had said he would come, and as, as Ricky read earlier, that he would be pierced for our transgressions. And he was. It was our transgressions that caused the crucifixion. It was our sin that caused him to be there in the first place. He was Messiah. He was the promised one. Verse 27 says, Then they crucified two robbers with him, one on the right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, And he was numbered with the transgressors. Those passing by were hurtling hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. You remember that statement? Tear down this temple, I'll, I'll destroy this temple, I'll tear it down, in three days I'll build it up. And they said, well, the, what are you talking about? The temple, God's house there that we built, took years to build. And you say you're going to tear it down and build it up in three days? They didn't understand. He wasn't talking about a, hand, a, a temple made with hands, a brick and mortar. He's talking about the, the real temple, his body. And when he told about that, he was telling about exactly what was happening here. But the people had no way to understand. If you can do that, save yourself. Come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priest also, along the scribes, were mocking him among themselves, saying, <laughs> he saved others and he can't even save himself. He said he forgave others' sins, but he can't even save his own physical life. He, he declared that he could forgive for eternity the sins of those whom he touched, and yet he can't even save his own physical life. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Now that was mocking, that was taunting. They're going to see something in just three short days that ought to have caused them to fall on their face before God and believe. They had no, if he had come down from the cross, they wouldn't have believed. They had no intent of believing. They, they had no capability, they had no desire to believe. They were so caught up in themselves, that's all they could think about. Come down and, and we'll believe. If we see it, we'll believe it. Those who were crucified him with him were also insulting him. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Elo, Elo, Lama, Sakbachini. It's close. <laughs> Which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Most believe that, most New Testament scholars believe that it's that moment when he, he began to feel the weight of all the sin of all his people 
upon himself at that time. Because remember, the, the horrors of the cross are not so much the nails and the spear and the hanging there for hours on the cross. The horrors of the cross are not the physical pain. The horror of the cross is the spiritual pain that came from bearing our sin. And it's thought that when he cried out that, he was beginning to feel the enormity, beginning to feel the weight of the sin of his people upon, his whole, upon himself. He who knew no sin was now becoming sin so that we who have no righteousness might become the very righteousness of God in him, Paul says. Why have you forsaken me? Why is there this darkness? Some of the bystanders heard it. They began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. He'd seen Elijah just a few days earlier. He and Peter and John and James on the Mount of Transfiguration where they were able to see his glory. And there stood Elijah and Moses testifying that this was the Son of God and hearing the voice from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. I mean, they, he had seen Elijah just a few days earlier. He was not calling for Elijah. He was merely expressing that the sacrifice that he had come to be was now being fulfilled. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it him to drink, saying, Let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. In other words, let's, let's give him a little refreshment, see if we can keep him going a little bit. We want to we, we keep this going. We, we want to see the fun. Maybe there's going to be a circus. He did a lot of miracles. Maybe we're going to see Elijah appear on his chariot of fire and take him right down the cross. Let's keep this thing going. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Some of the other Gospels tell us that that loud cry was, It is finished! Mark doesn't go into that detail. And, and you know that different apostles writing different Gospels or different other Gospel writers uh, saw it from a different perspective. They saw it and they recorded different things. Not that one's true and one's untrue. They just saw a different... Just like if you go out from here today and observe a wreck and you're four or five of your eyewitnesses to the wreck and the police take your statement there'll be a lot of details one of you will see that the others won't and vice versa he uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last it is finished verse 38 says and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom not from bottom to top as though a man could have done it as though someone in the temple could have done it but from top to bottom the very act of God tearing that veil what was significant in that? well the veil was what separated the people from the holy place the veil was what kept them separated from any kind of interaction with God in the temple the, the, the high priest could go behind the veil but the people couldn't they had no access to God. But in that one moment of him breathing his last and crying out with a loud cry, it is finished, breathing his last, the veil was torn 
and the symbol of, of separation from God was destroyed. <coughs> and access was opened. Access was opened through his death. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. I've often wondered, why could he have, how could he have said that? I mean, he's a Roman soldier, and he's there, and he's seen him scourged and beaten and mocked and spit upon, and, and now he's hanging on the cross, and the Roman soldier's right in front of him, and he hears him cry at his finish, and he, he hears him breathe his last breath. And he says, surely, truly, this was the Son of God. I don't know if it was because he didn't hate. Because as Peter said in his epistle, he didn't revile those who were reviling him. He didn't, he didn't curse back at them when they cursed him. He, he hung there in humility and he died. Maybe that helped. But I also can't help but think about the statement that Jesus made to Peter in Caesarea Philippi. When Peter said... When Jesus said, who do men say that I am? Remember the disciples? And they all said, well, some say you're Elijah, some one of the other prophets, or some John the Baptist. And, and, and they're all going through all this litany of people that uh, are names that the people say that I am. And Jesus looked at them and said, okay, but who do, who do you say that I am? And immediately Peter sprang up and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what did Jesus say to him? Peter, you, you've done good. You've listened to me and you've, you've watched me and you've seen the miracles and, and you've figured it out. Is that what he said? I said, Peter, it wasn't flesh and blood that revealed this to you. It wasn't your intelligence. It wasn't your skills of observation. One flesh and blood. But it was my Father in heaven who opened your eyes to see that truth. I, I, I just think as the centurion stood there, for whatever reason, God in His grace gave that centurion the ability to say, Wow! We have just crucified the very Son of God. I would like to have known what he said after that. Nobody records it for us. But I often wonder if he didn't say, truly this was the Son of God. How stupid are we? What a ridiculous act that we would involve ourselves in that crucifixion. But again, wasn't, it's their responsibility, but it wasn't just their doing. God placed His Son there that we might live. Scripture is abundantly clear on that. Verse 40 says, There were also some women looking on from a distance. 
among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and James the Less and Joas and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. There were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. He died. Just a couple of days before this event, he met with his disciples in that upper room. And he took bread and he took the wine and he, he broke it and he said, this is my body. This, this bread is my body. It's given for you. This wine is, the, is, is representative of my blood. It's the blood of the new covenant. It's poured out for you. It seals the covenant. It opens the relationship that you can have with him. It, it does the thing that, that happened on that, when, when Christ cried out his last words and, and the veil of the temple was rent and torn in two. By that blood that that veil was torn, it's by that blood that we have access on the basis of the new covenant to relationship with Him. Now He told the disciples, do this in remembrance of Me. He established it as something that they would carry on beyond the grave, beyond the resurrection, beyond even the ascension and His coming into the world. We don't have any real discussion of that happening until you get to the book of Acts. I mean, I guarantee you that right after the resurrect, or right after the death, during those three days in the tomb, Peter wasn't gathering the gang together and saying, well, let's get the bread and the wine and let's break it and, and go through that supper again that he instituted. They didn't do that. They were hiding. They were fearful. Three days later, he rose. Forty days later, he ascended into heaven. The God-man. And, and we've just been talking about it in Sunday school some, that, that he ascended as God-man. He is in heaven right now, sitting on the throne, both God and man. He's, he's, he's still the God-man, still God incarnate. As one writer said, he didn't just put on a costume while he was on the earth. He became flesh. He, 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 he lived among us. He identified with mankind. And as one of the Puritans said, he now, we now have the great satisfaction and the great assurance that the dust of the earth is sitting on the throne in heaven, the right hand of the Father. He is a miracle of miracles. Some, some may struggle with seeing him as still in the flesh in heaven but the scripture is clear that he never took off that now the Gnostics said he took off that body and went back as a spirit but, but the scripture never gives any indication of that and it's that body and that blood that we celebrate and we come to this table but, but after the ascension after he spent 40 days with them, after he's, he's talked to them and, and they've seen the empty tomb and the resurrection that we'll talk about next week and I've asked this question many times before. Can you imagine what the celebration of the supper must have been like after his ascension? 
You think it was a little different from this, the first celebration? When there, he just, you know, he passed it out and said, this is my body, this is my blood, and, and I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. And Peter said, no, you're not. And, Peter said, and Jesus said, one of you is going to deny me. And they all say, I'll never deny you. I will go to my death defending you. And he looked at Peter and said, Peter, before the cock even crows, you're going to deny me three times. Deny you even know me. I mean, they were a confused lot there at that first supper. They were so confused by the fact that Jesus would even talk about leaving and dying. But after the ascension, after they had seen the miracle of the resurrection, after they had seen his, his hands and his feet and seen the spear mark in his side, after they had seen his body resurrected from the grave, and after they had been with him that 40 days and he taught them and he encouraged them to go and feed his sheep, and, and after he talked all these things, then finally on that ascension day as they looked up into heaven and they just saw the Son of God, God incarnate, ascend back from where he came. think there was a whole lot of confusion that time when they celebrated the supper they were committed to mission at that point they were committed to what Paul said in that passage I read as a call to worship in the first part therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us we beg you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God Listen, they had gone from a frightened band of, of com confused individuals at the first time to the second time they had come to a point of saying, we are ambassadors for Christ. Okay, he has ascended to the Father. He is now seated at the right hand, but he has not left this world without a witness. He has not left this world without a testimony. And we are that testimony. We are that witness. We are the ones who are to call people, compel people, plead with people, beg people, be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. You see, he had turned them from a band of confused disciples into a company of missionaries in 40 days. From confusion to missionaries. I guess what I would ask you as we come to this table this morning and when you take that bread, think of the body that was on the cross. When you drink that cup, think, drink of that wine that represents his blood. And I would say to you, when you as you come to this table today, I think I'd ask, ask you to ask yourself this question. Am I a confused person? Or am I a missionary? You're one or the other. Am I confused about what this is all about? Or am I an ambassador for Christ? One who is here is his representative. One who, who is here to proclaim his message. Are you confused? Or are you a missionary? 
You're one or the other. Not a whole lot in between. Let's pray. And as we pray together, I can ask the deacons who will be serving to quietly make their way to the front. And I ask you to pray right now. Pray and just seek His face. Pray and ask the Holy Spirit to show you if there's confusion in your life about what your call is. Pray and ask the Lord if there's sin in your life that is affecting your fellowship with Him, your intimacy with Him. And then deal with it before Him right now. I want to say as I always say when we come to this table, this is the Lord's table. It's not the Grace Baptist table. It's not the Baptist table. It's the Lord's table. And all who have trusted in Him and been baptized, I invite you to come to this table. If you know Him, I ask you to join us in communion with Him around this table. If you are one of His, if He is your God and you are one of His people, Father, prepare our hearts for this table. and ask your blessing on this bread and this cup. We ask you, O oh Lord, to use it as a visual reminder of what took place on that day when our Lord was crucified. 
Father, I ask you to show us the glory of your grace. I pray for those who are here not believers. I, I pray, Lord, that while they would not take of the cup or the bread because they're not a child of yours, but I, I pray, Lord, that they would consider the sacrifice. That your Holy Spirit would take that and use it to bring them to you by faith. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say, I've come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Fathers ate man in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven that one may eat of and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh.
took the bread. And he said, this bread is my body, which is given for you. Take it and eat it and do this in remembrance of me. after they'd eaten the bread he took the cup and he said this is the blood of the new covenant which is poured out for you take and drink it drink all of it and do this in remembrance of me it's so simple that Jesus would take the normal act of eating and drinking and even with baptism bathing and say these are the elements these are the ordinances by which you will declare that you belong to me taking that bread taking that cup and rejoicing in his great sacrifice in a moment we're going to sing and as we sing together as hymn of commitment as God leads in your life you be obedient you be obedient where you are if you don't know him trust him place your faith in him right where you are if you need to come and express a desire to unite with Grace Baptist Church come we'll talk and we'll if we not talk before we'll set up a time to talk after that but if you want to express that desire now feel free to do that Primarily, we come this morning just to say, Lord, change my life because of your crucifixion, because of your death, because of you paying the price of my sin. Cleanse me and make me new. As Jeff comes to lead us in our closing hymn, as we prepare our hearts to be dismissed and think about what he has done let me remind you that there'll be some buckets at the back to drop your cups in when you go by uh, as you go out today I just drop them in there and don't leave them in here if you can help it and secondly as we always do on our Lord's Supper times we take a charis offering charis is Greek for grace and, and basically the charis offering goes for the uh, physical needs of people within our body uh, we have a benevolence fund for outside. Karis goes to meet the financial needs of our body, people who are without work or having extraordinary needs, and we minister to them that way. So drop in a dollar or 50 cents or a quarter or $100, whatever you feel, Ed, we'll be fine. Just sort of a pocket change offering, thanking him and giving glory to his name. Let's stand together as we sing.